all of a sudden I was surrounded by people who whose experience, whose lived experience was being left out. And it radically changed me in that sense. And I, I sort of reconnected with all these things from the past and it started making sense. You're listening to episode 33 of the Happy Space podcast. And today we're looking at how organizations can be more inclusive of persons with disabilities with accessibility consultant, Denis Boudreau. Welcome to the Happy Space Podcast, where productivity meets inclusivity, and everyone gets things done. Hello, I'm Claire Kumar, highly sensitive executive coach, speaker, and your host. Studies show that diversity leads to better business outcomes. So doesn't it make sense to invite everyone's richest contribution? Yet too many people are invited to burn out or opt out, and we are squandering talent. On this show, we'll explore a two-part solution. Part one, cultivating sustainable performance, the individual design of work and life to preserve our energy so we can keep contributing. And two, designing inclusive performance, the design of spaces, cultures, products, and services which invite the richest participation. I hope you enjoy these conversations and find inspiration and encouragement for everyone deserves a happy space. Way back in 2006, the world shared its intent for inclusion of those with disabilities through the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. There are now 183 countries on board, but still so much work to do. That's why I'm thrilled to have today's guest, Denis Boudreau, join us today. He's been bringing his talent to inclusive design in the online world since the early 2000s. Today, he is a consultant, trainer, coach, and speaker helping organizations create truly inclusive digital experiences for everyone, especially those who are marginalized. Denis works with leaders who want to develop inclusive communication skills online or from the stage. He also removes barriers for the up to 40% of the population who struggles with technology. Find out in this episode how Denis connected to his own feelings of being marginalized as a young boy to empathy and compassion for the disabled community and why there is such a strong business case to create more inclusive organizations. He also shares his perspective on what's getting in the way of leaders taking action and what to do about it. Denis Boudreau, welcome. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. And um, I wanted to start with asking you, what brought you to the work that you're doing? Um, it's a long story, I guess, like most people. So I come from a long background of uh, design and development, web development, web design. Um, and, uh, and I used to work as a developer, basically leading a team, uh, in the late 1990s. Um, and one day, uh, the project manager came to me and said, we just won this contract to redesign the website for an hospital here in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And part of the ask is that we build a website that blind people will be able to use. Please figure this out because we have no idea what that even means. 
and neither did I. But my role back then was to figure out why things weren't working as we were figuring out how to build the web, really. So I took on the challenge and discovered really quickly that there it was actually possible to do that. So in the summer of 2000, basically, wow. is when I discovered that you could create websites for blind people. And that led me on a path of researching how you could actually do stuff like that. And that led me to discovering a million things that I didn't know about disabilities and, and people who have disabilities. And that radically changed my life. It radically changed the, the trajectory of my work and gave a lot of meaning to a job that I otherwise found to be very uh, shallow in a lot of ways. And um, so, so for the last 23 years or so, I've been dedicating my life basically to finding ways to make the online world more accessible, more equitable to people who have disabilities, people who are marginalized by technology, mm. or people who are just getting older and are struggling with technology for one reason or another, which, you know, is all of us ultimately. Yeah. So uh, so that, that's how I came to do what I do. I mean, I've spent the last 23 years advocating, teaching, auditing, assessing, consulting, coaching, speaking on inclusion in the dig digital space. And that led me to expand that particular interest of mine into uh, areas of leadership, among other things, and communication to help yeah. you know, leaders and managers and organizations figure out how they're going to tackle that particular beast because it so happens that this is a this, this is mandated by law in Canada and the United States and a lot of other countries. Yes. So organizations actually have to make sure that their content is usable by people who have different types of disabilities. And, you know, most people have no idea to do that. Most people are where I was 23 years ago with that particular thing. I yeah. just got lucky that someone asked me to figure that out way before it was a thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it's led, it's led my, my, my path ever since. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, my head is going into all kinds of questions. The first one is uh, your personal experience that helps you relate to the need for people with who are being marginalized to be included. And I know in your book that you write a little bit about that. I wonder if did that drive you to feel that empathy and, and then turn into acts of compassion in your work to be able to identify with what feeling left out means? Today's episode of the Happy Space podcast is sponsored by ClaireKumar.com. With sensitivity, curiosity, and courage, I serve three groups asking the tough questions that lead to meaningful answers. Number one, I coach ambitious leaders to design for well-being and achieve next-level work-life integration. Number two, I mic drop thought bombs, that's bombs as in B-A-L-M-S, in keynotes and workshops, helping organizations achieve the business imperative that is inclusivity. And three, I collaborate with brands concerned with respect for well-being on product design, marketing, and PR. If any of this piqued your interest, come find me at clairekumar.com. I'd love to speak with you. Designing inclusive performance together will lead to the richest results. Yeah, for sure. It it I I think it I think it was always somewhere deep within me, but I'd lost track of that 
a long time ago. Uh, as a young adult, you know, I was very selfish, like a lot of people, and and you know, really thinking about what I what I wanted, what I needed. But I come from a background of I do come from a background of exclusion in a way. Um, you know, I I'm colorblind, so I have extensive experience in in being very young, um, being made fun of because I can't tell what colors are or tell colors apart, for instance. Um, growing up, I have been told many, many times that I would never be able to do a particular job because I wasn't able to tell colors apart. Mm. No, colorblindness is not a huge problem in life in general, but I have a significant limitation with color perception. So, uh, so you know, like most kids, I wanted to be a policeman at some point. And people were like, you'll never be able to tell which car you're chasing because you want to be able to tell the colors. Like, okay, so I can't do that. And then at wow. some point I wanted to be like an electrician. And they said, well, you know, you can't tell the, the wires apart. And, and, you know, I was fascinated as a kid uh, about, you know, movies where you would have like SWAT teams diffusing bombs, for instance. And I said, I would never be able to do that either because you wouldn't trust yeah. me with cutting the orange wire yeah or the green one because i can't really tell would be a little dangerous so so i you know even though it was never something particularly dramatic yeah it was always in the back of my mind that oh there are things that i can't do there are things that people would not allow me to do because of my limitation yeah so but that was buried very deep within me and um and you know i ended up studying other things that then weren't related to colors and you know everything was fine yeah, but, but then just, when I just, I just, can I pause you there for just one second? Because I immediately went to, well, why can't we have a pattern on the wire? Or why can't we have something else beside color oh, yeah. so that you could actually do it? We've defaulted to color. It's because it's probably the quickest dif way to differentiate things. Yeah. But yeah. Well, uh, for, for, isn't for there a workaround? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you bring up an excellent you know, uh, accommodation that that we use all the time in, in web design, for instance. I mean, yes, colors are awesome. It's great. It conveys information. But when it does, if you support that color with some other visual cue, then it makes it that much more inclusive of people. So yeah. so it's it's a very logical and, and, you know, a great solution to a problem that is otherwise related to color perception. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And um but like, like, like I was saying, this, like all of these things that I had experienced in the past, and, you know, as a young kid as well, I remember um, I, I used to live in a very white neighborhood. And, um, and you know, a summer, I was probably like nine or 10, I think, a, um, a Black family bought the house right in front of mine. And I remember that most kids would not want to play with, with Brian, that little kid who was exactly my age. And, and somehow for whatever reason i decided that he would be my friend mm -hmm. and we would we hung out together like for years and he was my best friend and and through me making him my friend then he became friends with other people people who accepted that he was different and yeah. you were know, want to be friends with him regardless of that so i've always had these things inside of me of like going for the underdog or, or trying to, you know, support or help those who are left out a little bit. So that was always there, but I lost sight of all of that as I was growing up. Yeah. And then, and then when I discovered this thing about, you know, building websites for blind people, it kind of, it, it, it caught up to me in a way, I guess. And as I started discussing these things, because I, like I was saying, I was responsible for figuring out how, why things don't work in technology at the business, the company that I was working with. So uh, working at rather, 
and we had an internet and I was sharing some of these thoughts on a daily basis on the internet. And, um, you know, that was basically blogging before blogging was actually a thing. That was like 2001 or so. Um, and, and at some point I decided that I would just share that on a website because we were starting to do these things and started to get feedback from people all over the world in France and in, in Switzerland, you know, in Europe for the most part, where people speak French because I was doing the whole thing in French and, and, and in Quebec. And the people that were reaching out to me were people that had disabilities and saying, oh my God, I, like I, what you're talking about is exactly what I'm feeling or what I'm experiencing. Do you have an idea for this or that? Like people were all trying to figure out what you do with technology or computers. I mean, remember like it's late 1990s, early 2000. Yeah. The web was around, but a lot of people were not used to it yet. You were still getting your internet on a CD on a, on a, a CD-ROM uh, from AOL or things like that back then. That's right. So it was new for everyone. And I made a ton of friends that had disabilities. All of a sudden, I was surrounded by people who whose experience, whose lived experience was being left out. And it radically changed me in that sense. And I, I sort of reconnected with all these things from the past and it started making sense. And, and I guess in a way, that's why I got led into that particular direction because there's, there was all that, that prior experience that I had always felt without really knowing why. Yeah. But that, that's kind of why it, it, it is what it is for me today. Yeah. That's um, such a powerful connection. And I think if we can all look back, there's, there's, we've all been excluded from things. And I think maybe oh, yeah. I'm just making a connection for leaders today who are like this DEI thing, this is just, you know, it's extra work for me to go back into that lived experience and pull out an experience where you as a leader felt left out and yeah. use that as a point of connection to say, well, actually, yeah, I do need to do something about it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, I want to come to that question in a second, but I already had another one that popped in my mind when you were speaking earlier. We were talking about the fact that this is law to respect a yes. disability and be inclusive in many countries, ADA in, in the States, in Ontario, we have even provincial legislation underneath the federal legislation. And I've jumped up recently to look at the UN Convention for Rights with People with Disabilities. And 183 countries, I think, have adopted this intention, right. yeah. which I think was 2006 that sort of started to come into yes. being, and then countries have come on and come on. Correct. But it strikes me, Denis, that we this is an intention document, and then every country has their le legislation, and then there's jurisdictional legislation. And in that UN human rights document, it talks about disability. And it talks about impairment as mm. well. And it, it struck me that it's really, it's, it's more looking towards the social model of disability, where if your, effect, your participation in society is limited, then there's a problem, rather than you've got a diagnosis, and therefore right. we need to give you an accommodation. So I, I say all that just to provide a little backdrop for listeners to understand it's a little murky out there. What's your perception on the intention that the UN convention set and how things are being interpreted and where we might be on this curve to being fully inclusive. Because I have some thoughts, but I'm really interested in yours because you've been really in this space for a long time. 
So, so 2006 is, is when the document first came out, if I remember correctly, uh, indeed. And back then in Canada, for instance, we already had accessibility standards um, at the federal level. Mm -hmm. so, so those have been around since early 2000 as well. The actual international guidelines for accessibility date back from 1999. So, you know, very early on, we had something in Canada mm -hmm. that um, that the federal government was looking at in terms of ensuring a like some level of inclusiveness uh, for folks with disabilities um, in, uh, in in on the in the online world. Um, but it was only around 2012 or so that it really became something more concrete at the federal level. Before that, in 2005, the AODA was adopted. So in Ontario, the uh, Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act was adopted with this very ambitious vision of creating Ontario as a fully inclusive province by 2025. That's like a year and three months from now. <laughs> Sorry, and I'm not can... supposed to laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I guess you can because we're nowhere near that at this right. point for sure. Um, and And... You know, back in 2005, we had, uh, I mean, back then, the standards as we, the silly standards as we know it internationally were not the ones that we have today. So we didn't have this very clear set of deadlines or, or milestones to hit. But as of 2008, um, that international standard got sort of upped into the, their second version. And then that started creating milestones for, uh, for Ontario. Uh, 2014 was the first one, 2021 was the second one of those major milestones for what kind of, of accommodations you have to have on your website to make it accessible to people. As these years were going through, other provinces also adopted different initiatives or guidelines or principles or laws in some cases along the same lines as Ontario. So most of the country at this point either has a very specific law that speaks to accessibility for the you know for 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 the government the provincial government itself yeah and some of them including ontario are also getting into the private sector and saying that you also have to abide by these laws um as a business especially if you're a business with over 50 people for instance yeah and, there's know, a size parameter yeah yes the yeah, yeah, it's a size parameter, but and, and there are also financial, uh, you know, penalties that range depending on your the size of your business and things like mm -hmm. that, and whether or not you do business outside mm -hmm. of your province and everything. So, so we have all this structure in place here that is all basically found on the same principles as what we had in the UN uh, convention, like UNCP. I forget the acronym, but you know, the the UN document from 2006. All of this is also very much influenced by the United States, where we have the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, in 2019, here in Canada, we all the efforts at the federal level to really create an accessibility accessibility policy or or you know framework, sort of uh, snowballed into the Accessible Canada Act. So as of July of 2019, we have that, which is very similar to the ADA, the American um. with Disabilities Act in the United States, in the sense that. It's requiring the exact same level of conformance to international standards. Mm. It's um, the expectations for any, uh, you know, federal uh, entity or any uh, organization under federal jurisdiction has to abide by these rules. And there are six different major uh, categories where it applies, such as telecommunication, transport, um, 
you know, workplace and everything like that. So all of these things have created an environment, not just in North America, but around the world in most developed countries where there is a definite, um, you know, goal to become more accessible as a society, to not leave anyone behind, to make sure that everyone has a fair, equitable access to opportunities and, um, and, and potentially outcomes as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I had a brush with this early this year with a, a course that I was taking and mm. I, yeah, you're, you're familiar with the challenge. And I wrote about it because I never thought I'd be writing about a watermark being a human rights issue. And, and it's interesting. I, I connected with a human rights lawyer in the U S over LinkedIn and he took a look at what I was talking about. And he said, it's absolutely a human rights matter. And so did two organizations in South Africa, because I thought this organization that I took the program with was out of South Africa. And I thought, perhaps there's a different context in different countries. And by all means, the same, um, the same guidance existed there. But I ran into a smaller company. So perhaps legislation doesn't apply. You know, federal legis legislation there wouldn't apply. And so it's at the whim of the the leader to decide, well, I don't feel like being inclusive. I'm, I don't, I perceive there's a business risk to doing this, so I'm not. So too bad for you. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it, it very likely is that they are bound by some kind of, of obligation, but they're unaware of it. And as a result of that, don't feel like it's something that they should care about. Um, a lot of yeah. people actually think about, you know, disabilities and, and accommodations for people with disabilities as a bit of an edge case. And like my main clients are not like that, no big air quotes here. So I'm not gonna bother, but if only they understood the business case around di digital inclusion, I mean, they'd be all over that thing for sure, because yeah. no one in their right mind would not want to, you know, tap into that untapped market if they only they understood how big of a market that is in the first place. So, Can you help our listeners understand how you describe how important it is from a business perspective oh, to absolutely. not ignore the the market of people with disabilities, which is ever increasing as our population ages. Very true. Uh, I'm happy to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it begins by understanding what we mean by disability, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, so we know in Canada, 22% of the population self-identifies as having at least one disability. So right off the bat, one out of five of us has something, some condition, some particularity that requires a certain type of accommodation. If you do nothing about that to begin with, if you just sort of dismiss the entire thing, you're basically saying 20% of your, of your potential clients you're not really interested to do business with them or they don't yeah. matter enough for you to do that. Yeah. And, and you and, know, interestingly, in this case that I was talking about in the spring, there was an actual polling of the people in the program and 19% of people had the same concern I did. And yeah. the decision was to dismiss them absolutely blatantly, dismiss yeah. the need. And I you know, was the, in shock. It's, it's fascinating to me because what you're describing here is this, you know, this, this, this perception that you're going to sort of shoot for your average users. You're going to yeah. go for you know, your average customer, your your target audience, whatever that might mean. But in reality, no one ever really fits that profile because we all have a little something that makes us not completely fit in that particular description that you that you would think of your your ideal customer, for instance. Mm -hmm. When you have 19% of, of the folks in your class who agree with you and you know the teacher or the trainer, whoever that person was, 
chooses to go with the other 81%. It kind of makes sense when you think about it from that perspective. Like 81 is obviously bigger than 19. But if they only would have agreed to what you were asking and removed that watermark, then 100% of people would have would have you know used it. Mm -hmm. Like why why move away from that group of people, right? It makes no sense to begin with. So when you look at it from the perspective of disabilities, you know, 20%, 22% in Canada, 27% in the US, roughly 20, 21% in, in, in Europe in general, that percentage is pretty much the same everywhere. It ranges by a couple of, of points, but it's roughly the same everywhere. It's 1.3 billion people around the world, roughly. So, I mean, the, the math adds up whichever you look at it. Mm -hmm. But it's not just people, it's also purchasing power. When you look at you know, the um, the average, uh, the after-tax disposable income of Canadians with disabilities, according to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, it's $65 billion a year. When you think about the U.S. market, if you actually want to do business with the U.S., it's $504 billion a year. It's half a trillion dollars every year that is controlled by people who have disabilities. Mm -hmm. When you think about things like that and you're thinking, would you want to cut yourself away from a market of half a trillion dollars or, you know, 50, 560 some billion dollars if you take Canada and the U.S.? Most business owners would say, actually, I'd like to tap into that if you don't mind. Thank you. But they won't because they never even get that far because all they think about is we don't have any clients who are blind. Why would I bother with this? And, and the other part that's important to understand when it comes to why disability is much more prevalent than we realize is that, you know, 80% of disabilities are in fact invisible. So, you know, it's easy to spot someone in a wheelchair or someone with a service dog, for instance, mm -hmm. but you never know unless people tell you that they're colorblind like me or that they have, you know, anxiety issues or that they have a learning disability or that they have ADHD or that they're on the, on the autism, uh, autism spectrum, for instance, not every, or hearing not loss hearing or, or earring loss, yeah. low vision. I mean, all these different things you can't really tell. Mm -hmm. And if you don't accommodate for those, these folks are going to go elsewhere. If you don't serve them properly, they're going to go to your competitors. And, and some of those competitors are picking up on this and they're making real tangible efforts to be more accessible. They're, they're getting all that business that others are not getting as a result of that. So slowly but surely, leaders are starting to understand this. And then also with, with the rise of DEI considerations, businesses and workplaces are trying to be more welcoming and inclusive of, of folks who have disabilities because what you realize is that when you have a diverse workforce, you have also a diversity of perspectives and, and ideas and ways to look at fixing a like like fixing a problem like you get a lot more innovative possibilities available to you because not everybody thinks and feels and and sees things the same way so you benefit from this and and you know most accommodations out there the the average uh, cost for an accommodation for for someone with a disability is like five hundred dollars to get them started. So some of them are a little bit more complicated, but most of them are almost free. So it's not as expensive as people think. And as long as you provide people with a work environment or a job description that fits their, their, their capabilities, these folks are going to bring you a lot of value as well, like any other resource would. Um, but we're just afraid to, to even try it in the first place, which is why people with disabilities are largely underemployed or, as opposed to people who have disabilities. Yeah, and that's that is right. true. You know, in the workplace, that's true in in education. That's true in the university or 
college settings, for instance, like that's true everywhere. Yeah. And, and advocating for these things and advocating for the the potential that these folks have and, and what they can bring to society is also part of why we do what we do. Yeah. I I liked how Lisa Whited put it. Um, she was on the podcast as well. Uh, and she talked about leadership fear of managing expectation. You know, mm. I, 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 I thought that really described what I anticipate well, is that leaders, leaders are used to this medical model. If you've got an, you know, you've got a diagnosis, we can get you an accommodation and just go to HR and they'll sort you out. But this is far more nuanced than that. So it, it, what, what do you think new. is behind the leadership reticence to actually dive into this and say, what can I do? Well, well, ignorance and, and you know, fear of the, of the unknown is a huge driver in there. I mean, most people are much more cons- uh, you know, concerned with their bottom line and what and you know having to report at the end of every quarter, every month to their their shareholders, for instance, or their mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. So that is the priority. Like short-term management is really what drives a lot of our businesses. So so that certainly explains part of it. Um generally speaking, yeah, I, I believe it's just just ignorance. And you know, I don't mean that in a like in a negative way. I mean yeah. If you don't know about something, you don't know about something. Yeah. But uh, but organizations that actually decide to embrace disability inclusion and pay attention to what it brings them realize that that diversity of perspectives really makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And and you know the loyalty that it builds with your with your workforce is also something that's important. And how people connect together and the ties that they create. And, and the learning experiences that come from that, both from the perspective of people who have disabilities, but also those who don't have disabilities. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest challenges that I think we face is the fact that it's very much a us versus them kind of mentality. But how many people really take the time to understand what it's like to you know, live with that particular condition, whatever that might be? And, and you know, you were talking about empathy before and, and you're raising awareness. Mm-hmm it's very easy to dismiss or ignore something you know nothing about. And, you know, mm-hmm. we all have a million things to think about and, you know, we all have a thousand Netflix shows to watch. I mean, we have other things that are priorities, right? Yeah. But when all of a sudden in your life, in, in your in your close environment, you meet people who are different than you, you have two options. You can either decide that you don't want to do anything with them or you can you welcome their differences into your life and and learn from that. And I like to think become better as a result of that. And and when you do that, what you're doing is normalizing the differences. And the more they're normalized, the less we see them. The less we see them, the more they get embedded into everything that we do. And all of a sudden you have this much more inclusive environment to work in and more people can thrive because there's a sense of pride in that as well, that you know, people develop over time, knowing that we're doing something good, fundam- fundamentally good uh, for, for folks, for our environment, for society in general. Yeah. Um, you used the word embed there, and I just wanted to pick up on that because what, what I hear in all of this is you know, tied to that, the ask model that I talk about for leaders to adopt, which is ask stands for anticipate the needs your team might have. And it applies to yourself as well. It's a cycle of questions. Anticipate what you need. Source and suggest the solutions that are going to work. And then commit to better knowing 
all the time better knowing. And that has to be embedded in the way you work. So it's not a once a year, I'm going to ask Denis how he's doing and, right. and he'll give me the update. It's, it's continually being in touch with the humans who are working together. And so I just, I just created something actually called the Happy Space Workstyle Profile, which is a short six to 10 minute questionnaire for self-reflection first to say, what do I need to work at my best? Because not everybody even has, no mm. one's been asked. Has anybody asked you ever, Denise, you know, what, what environment and conditions invite you to perform at your best? Right. Yeah. So this questionnaire is meant to be a tool for individuals and then also leaders to use with their team to actually invite that knowing in a collective way and share, share the information. And then co-create and co-design how you're going to work together and, and mm -hmm. to acknowledge the asks you're going to make of the person who's in a wheelchair, the person who's hard of hearing, the person whose husband is going through chemotherapy. Because caregiving is, you know, all of the things that can cause us to reprioritize work like the pandemic did it or how we work, those things are still happening all the time. And yeah. we don't seem to have a construct in the work world to say, I need to actually pay attention to all of that because everyone's going to understand reprioritizing work for immediate health emergency, for a house that just got flooded, for a climate crisis of smoke and you can't, you can't travel, you shouldn't be on the road now if you don't have to be. Like there's mm. so many things that come into the way we need to design things. I thought we need some help here. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we're particularly good at having these conversations. Is there, is there anything that you've noticed that helps leaders really step into this knowing and making it a safer place to actually disclose? I mean, it took me seven years to disclose that I have MS publicly. Mm. I just kept it super quiet for a long time because I was afraid. Mm. I was afraid of repercussion. Um. Yeah, any kind of backlash, really. I mean, yeah, yeah th th there are there are many things. I mean, I I could we we could talk about this th th this content that I've been creating around um, you know keys to inclusive leadership. Like I I, I work with fifteen different keys wow. that help leaders really build this inclusive mindset and inclusive workplace, and all of that begins with. The, I, the ability to understand disabilities, like really understand what that means and, and, you know, become familiar with, you know, the prevalence, for instance, like how many people are there and how many people are there in my own place of work? Um, you know, most people, when you ask them, they have no idea how many people actually have disabilities. And when, and when they ask their folks, most folks would never even say it exactly for the reasons that you mentioned, fear yeah. of repercussion, fear of backlash, fear of yeah. being seen as less than, losing privileges like all like and, and it all comes down to a matter of trust mm. the environment does not create enough trust for people to want to disclose these things so they hide them and by hiding those things they probably struggle more than they should because they could ask for specific assistive technologies or accommodations but they won't do that out of fear of being singled out they experience, you know, stigma and, 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 you know, prejudice and, and discrimination all the time. Mm -hmm. These things are typically very normal. People don't think about them. People don't even know that you have that disability. So they might say things that are a little insensitive and, you know, you, you, you get it. You like, you receive that. And even though 
you can't really do anything or say anything, I mean, it still hurts somewhere inside you. So when these things are happening regularly, it's just a reminder that this place is not a place where you feel safe. So when your leadership decides all of a sudden that they want to do something about DEI and they ask you in a survey, hey, we'd like to know how many of you have have disabilities so we can do something about that. The last thing you want to do is say, oh, I have MS, for instance. Yeah. Last thing you want to do. So the result is typically that these leaders will, you know, well-intentioned leaders, I mean, they want to do something great, but the way that they do that is not the ideal way. And therefore, what they get in their survey results is that very few people are disabled or have disabilities or have you know particular conditions. And so they they conclude that they don't really have anyone in the in the organization that does. So why bother or why yeah. do anything about that? And that does two things for me. The first thing that it does is it obviously creates this false sense of we don't have anything to do here. And you know, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's bad enough. But there's another consequence that does is a lot worse, I think, which is that if you have a disability, and you know, you've been hiding it more or less successfully for years. And all of a sudden, there's this conversation about the I mean, part of you is going to be a little excited, part of you is probably going to be a little sarcastic about it. But you know, part of you is going to be excited that maybe it could change. But you're not ready to disclose that yet. Mm. So you don't say anything, maybe you don't fill out the survey, but you saw the survey, you know that there's something that's brewing there. Yeah. And then nothing else ever happens. So what that tells you is that, okay, they really don't care about this. Lip service. And yeah, lip service. And, and you know, yes, you're in part responsible for not having disclosed or, or having brought it up yourself. But there's a good reason for you not doing that. There was never anything that was done in that in that workplace to make you feel like you could or even should. Or was it so, worth it? As I I just interviewed Stephen Shedletsky about speak up culture. He says there's there's two things that need to be at play. Is it safe, and is it worth it? And right, you're exactly, exactly describing. It. Well, what was the point? There was no value to being uncomfortable and yeah. potentially putting a target on my back. So why would I? So, yeah. so, yeah. so I, I, I just disclosed that I have this, that I'm dyslexic and everybody knows it now and nothing is done about that. No one's offering me any different types of, of way to prepare for a meeting. People right. still send me these five page pages brief that yeah. I don't really want to read or that I have a hard time reading. Like yeah. nothing has really changed, but now everybody knows about this. So what did I win in there really? Yeah. And so, so, you know, that, that, that's, that's super damaging. Yeah. And and instead, if you, as a leader, if you commit to making some changes, like very subtle, like there's nothing super complicated, but a lot of subtle little changes, like, you know, just speaking to demonstrating, um, offering opportunities to for for, uh, for leadership positions, people who have disabilities, making sure that you have representation in different areas so that people can recognize themselves, like all those and and, and many other things are all ideas that you can put into practice to slowly change the culture and make people feel like, oh, you know what, maybe I could speak about this now because I noticed so-and-so has gotten a promotion and, you know, we know that they have, they they struggle with, with mental health issues, for instance, or that, you know, they have ADHD and, Mm. you know, like it's becoming something that, you know, we, we accept more. Um, You know, the very first time that I, talked about being colorblind as someone who was designing websites people freaked out <laughs> freaked out 
Yeah, I was going to ask you that because as you were talking about electric wires and police work, and I'm thinking, wouldn't you need color for web design work? Or how, how do you navigate around that? You you do what you can. I mean, you you play it safe in a lot of ways. I mean, I mean, I, I can give you an even worse example. Well, it's actually a better example than that. I mean, before I was working in in you know IT and technology, um, I spent four years working in a in a factory in Montreal where we were designing men's suits. My job at that place was to select colors and match colors together. I did that very successfully for four years. I had no idea I, to this day. I don't really know what taupe means, but I know that between 1992 and 1996, taupe and navy worked fantastically together. Yeah. I mean, that was a thing. All I needed to do was basically look at colors that other companies were, were you know, choosing and matching because every single thing is organized in there. So every color had a particular number and I would work through numbers. So what I was going to say, patterns, you, for instance, you found another language to you communicate. You find a coping mechanism. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. that speaks to, it's it's a very simple example, but it speaks to this idea that when you are constantly facing challenges because of your environment, so back to what you were saying about the, the medical model versus the social model, mm-hmm. but that medical model in this case would be, I'm the one with a problem. Yeah. The, the social model would be the environment is the problem. So either way, as the person who actually experiences that thing, you have to be creative to find ways to work around the challenges. So in my case, that was it. I mean, I have a surprisingly high level of knowledge around Xcode values, for instance. Xcode values being one of the ways in which you can define a color. Like yeah. I can, I can, I know colors by their six code values as yeah. opposed to you know what they actually look like. If you tell me, you know, salmon as a color, yeah, whatever that color looks like never looks like the fish when yeah. I look at it. So, I mean, these things are very different to me, but if you ask me to build the color using code, I know exactly how to build that because I, I understand how that logic works. Yeah. I had to teach myself that to compensate yeah. for the fact that I can't tell the colors apart. And people so, do that all the time. Yeah. I, I, what I hear a lot, what my hypothesis is that the cheapest and biggest accommodation is flexibility. And this is, oh, sure. this is something yeah. that can be given at no cost. The, the, the price of entry to believe that flexibility is the solution, though, is a redefinition of fair from equality to equity. And I think that's a particularly difficult thing to manage in a union environment where everyone's to be treated the same and there's a lot of procedures. And, and, and beyond that, we grew up with an expectation that everybody should get the same thing. And yeah. I think if we can redefine fair, then we can step into flexibility. Then we can step into some of these accommodations like, oh, Denis, you found a way to work with it. Off you go. This is amazing. Or we can we can make more allowances for it. I want to finish with just coming back to your keys. The I think mm-hmm. you said 15 keys? 15, one, five, yes. Yeah. Is there is that something that you've written about in a blog or is easy, easy to share? Or do, I, how, do we, how do we come to understand that a bit more? Yeah, well, I'm happy to share uh, some of those links with you, uh, with with your your listeners after this. Great. I, I am writing. I am still writing extensively about it. Um, I, I initially wrote. So, so the whole thing started with a client request, request as it typically does. So, I had a pre- to prepare a presentation for uh, for a group of uh, of clients on leadership and inclusion, and I came up with you know what I thought 
like I sat down one day and said, like, what are what are the key items? And you know, went to 15 and said, that's a good list. I'm going to stop here. Um, yeah. And then basically wrote about that for a couple of weeks. So I have I have this blog. So inclusive.ca slash info dash hub, info hub. And then in, in there is a lot of content uh, articles and such, you know, tips and tricks around inclusion and all that good stuff. Amazing. Um, so, so I'm happy to share that. And, and so wrote about these 15 different keys as a concept, uh, built, built an entire presentation around that. And then what I'm doing now is every week I'm writing more extensively on every one of those 15 keys. And my goal ultimately is to write a, I have the whole thing turned into a book. So that's kind of where I'm headed for early 2024 with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a roadmap. That's how I look at it. It's a roadmap, a blueprint to get from, you know, zero DEI to something that, you know, might actually be good. And, um, and one of the main drivers for doing that in the first place was that I, I, I learned not so long ago that of all the organizations that do have a DEI policy or framework or initiative internally, only 4% of them actually include disability in you know, their protected characteristics. So you know, everybody is, is, is all over, you know, gender expression, mm. uh, you know, sexuality, race, yeah. uh, you know, religion, all these different things. I mean, they're all very important things, obviously, mm-hmm. but you know, disability is the only group that spans across all these other groups. And yet somehow it's never included anywhere. So yeah, I'm seeing the same thing, disability and now neuroinclusivity, the, the right, different yeah. way we think and the, the, the especially invisible challenges, which we can just pretend don't exist. I'm like, this is what I'm, I'm really motivated to, to speak about too. And I, I'm thrilled, I'm thrilled that you're bringing your years of expertise out in a way that can be shared with everyone. So definitely you've got to check out Denise's writing and you'll see the links in the show notes for sure. Um, Denise also has the book for speakers who want to be more inclusive when they're presenting and uh, will continue to be a fount of knowledge. Denise, I'm so indebted to you for this um, enlightening conversation. And listeners, please uh, show Denise some love. We'll be, of course, sharing everything in social media. We'll tag Denise. And if you hear this podcast, podcasting is kind of a lonely place, right? We put this out. Denise and I are having a great conversation, but we are thinking of all the listeners out there that this will touch. And we do love to hear from you. So please, uh, please let us know what you think. Write a review or share some love back to us in the comments, particularly for Denise's great insights here. Uh, into making the world practically more inclusive. It's beyond time for it and uh, we're ready. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Denis. Yeah, you take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can find all of the Happy Space podcast episodes over at happyspacepod.com. I love learning what resonates with you, so please leave a comment about this episode over social media, or even better, post a review wherever you tune in. And if you have an idea for a topic to explore or an inclusive action to celebrate, I would love to know more about it. It might even appear in an upcoming episode or an issue of the Happy Space newsletter. Please help me spread the word about people doing great things. After all, doesn't everyone deserve a happy space?